Hey, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's video. I hope that it encourages you. I hope that it inspires you. And I hope that it causes you to dive deeper into God's word. I also hope that you have some community around you that you can talk through some of these things with. And I want to remind you that we are in the middle of our year in the story, which is really this deep dive into God's great story and our place in it. If you'd like more information about that or about our community here at Restore, you can get that all on our website at restoreaustin.org. We really would love to see you soon. Thanks. Last week, I began the message with a 30-second overview of the Bible. Here it is again. The first thing, God is unbelievably powerful, glorious, mighty, and good. He's the one true God, creator and sustainer of all things. He is different and better than any other God or being who has ever lived. Number two, this amazing God not only created us in his image, but his desire is to be in intimate relationship with us. And then finally, number three, even when we keep messing that relationship up, even when we don't trust him, even when we turn our backs on him, he relentlessly pursues us with his love. He comes after us in a, in a spirit of restoration by any means necessary. This is the story of scripture. This is the story of God with us. And we see this story play out in five acts. Act one, the Garden of Eden that we talked about last week. Act two is Israel. Act three, Jesus, act four, the Holy Spirit, and finally act five, the new heaven and new earth after the return of Christ. This past Sunday, as I said, we looked at Acts chapter one, excuse me, act one. God building the first temple centered around the Garden of Eden, where we live in intimate relationship with God. This first act ends with humanity breaking God's temple and then leaving God's presence, but all hope is not lost. Because even as humanity leaves God's presence, God makes a promise. He says that one day he will send a new human, an offspring of the first woman, Eve, who will crush the head of evil. And with that, Act 1 ends. This morning, we jump into Act 2, Israel. And on the outside of the Eden temple, and with their backs turned on the presence of God, humanity quickly descends into violence and evil. Brother rises up against brother, and the very first murder takes place as Cain kills Abel. In Genesis 4, we see Cain's descendant, Lamech. He is so depraved that he actually writes a song about all the women he treats harshly and all the men he's killed. In Genesis 11, we have the familiar story of the flood and of Noah's ark. That story is usually all butterflies and rainbows, pun intended there. But basically, as soon as Noah's family steps off the boat, they descend into evil yet again. All of this violence, all of this oppression reaches its apex in a city called Babylon. And Babylon is a very important city that we'll see mentioned time and time again, both literally and figuratively throughout the biblical story. But in Babylon in Genesis 11, we see the invention of a new technology, bricks. And these bricks allow people to make large structures really quickly. So they decide to use these bricks to make a tower called the Tower of Babel. They believe this tower will reach up into the heavens, making them like God and making their own names great. So God comes down, he confuses their language, and he scatters them over the whole earth. 
And after the scattering, factions begin to form. And think about it, just 13 chapters after God looks at his creation and calls it very good, humanity is at war. Nations are murdering each other. But God is not ready to give up on his very good creation just yet. He's not ready to give up on his image-bearing humanity. He's coming after them with his love. He's pursuing them with his presence. And like we said last week, even when we break God's temples, he keeps making them. Even when we turn our backs on his presence, he pursues restoration with us. So God enacts a new plan. He chooses a people to make a covenant with in order to restore his relationship with all humanity. This covenant begins with a man named Abram, who would later be renamed Abraham. We read about it in Genesis 12, starting in verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. So God makes this covenant with Abraham to bless his offspring so that all humanity will be blessed through them. You see, he's restoring his relationship with Abraham's family so that he can begin restoring his relationship with every family in the whole world. So Abraham goes to the place God shows him. He and his wife Sarah have a son named Isaac, and Isaac has a son named Jacob. And that's why throughout the Old Testament, God is many times referred to as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then even though Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are far from perfect, and they even break the covenant with God multiple times, God still renews his covenant with each one of them, promising to bless the whole world through this family. Jacob goes on to have 12 sons, and Jacob is actually later renamed Israel, which is how his 12 sons become the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel and where this nation actually gets its name. Starting in Genesis 37, we meet one of his sons named Joseph. Joseph is, is kind of a special guy. He has all these dreams from God about how he'll rule over his brothers, and instead of presenting them humili in humility, he actually lords them over his brothers. He tells them all the time that he's going to be in charge, and he's also his dad's favorite. Jacob gives him this coat of many colors that he wears, and his brothers have had enough. So they get mad, they beat him up, they throw him in a pit, they take his coat of many colors, they put bear's blood all over it, they take it back to Jacob and say, your son has been mauled by a bear, he is dead. And they go and they sell Joseph into slavery in Egypt. But God has a different plan for Joseph because once he gets to Egypt, through an incredible series of circumstances, he actually rises to prominence. He rises to second in command in Pharaoh, who is the leader of all of Egypt, second in command in his household. And then famine hits. But because God has revealed to Jacob that the, fam the famine is coming, Egypt has for seven years been putting away a bunch of food. And so Egypt is set up. In fact, they're one of the only nations in the whole world at this point who is set up to survive this famine. So Jacob, Israel, his family goes to Egypt. They hear about the food that is there and they go there looking for help. And when they get there, who do they find but their long lost son and brother, Joseph. And Joseph welcomes them with open arms. He says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And Israel, the nation, the family, is welcomed into Egypt. And the book of Genesis ends with Israel as guests in Egypt. And then 400 years go by in between the end of Genesis and the beginning of the next book in the Bible, Exodus. 
You see, when Exodus starts, the people of Israel are no longer guests in Egypt. They are, in fact, slaves. 400 years is a long time, and many pharaohs have come and gone. They've since forgot about Joseph. And Israel, the nation, was populating so quick that Pharaoh said, we must enslave them to keep them under control. In fact, not only that, let's kill every one of their firstborn sons to make sure that they do not get too powerful. So Israel cries out to God in the midst of this slavery, in the midst of this oppression and death. And God hears the cries of Israel in Egypt. So he raises up a man named Moses to free them. Moses goes to Pharaoh. He says, God has told me to tell you to let his people go. Pharaoh says, no, I'm never going to do that. So Moses goes back to God and he says, it's not going to work. Pharaoh said, no. And in Exodus 6, God responds to Moses and says this, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant with them. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob." I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. So with that, God sends Moses back to the Pharaoh and and even sends plagues on Egypt, these acts of divine judgment against the horror and evil that was existing through Pharaoh and his men in Egypt. And so the people of Israel are freed from Egypt, and we get to see this beautiful glimpse of God's covenant purpose being partially fulfilled as they leave Egypt. You see, Exodus 12 says that about 600,000 Israelite men, along with many more women and children, went up out of Egypt. And then verse 38 says this, A mixed multitude also went up with them, and much livestock, both flocks and herds. You see, non-Israelites, this mixed multitude, are seeing the power and grace of God and leaving behind all the evils of pagan religions in Egypt to follow him. God is restoring his relationship with all of humanity through the Israelites. This is the plan. We're seeing it begin to come to fruition. And things are looking really, really good here. God is with the people of Israel. He even shows off, right, with the miracle of parting the Red Sea and letting them cross on dry land. In Exodus 15, Moses' sister, Miriam, is leading the people in a song that says, The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The song ends in Exodus 15, 21, with the people all together shouting, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. That's verse 21. But listen to verse 22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? One verse, and they go from singing to grumbling. One verse, and they start forgetting all about what God has done for them and start doubting his goodness and his grace toward them. And it's just the beginning. Look at what they're saying in the very next chapter, Exodus 16. In the desert, 
The whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. God has just rescued them from slavery under a ruthless and evil leader in Egypt. They just watched God part the Red Sea so that they could walk through on dry ground. They just finished singing a song about how God is worthy of their praise and their trust, but as soon as things start to get a little bit difficult, they begin looking for something else to trust. They began seeking fulfillment apart from God. Does that sound familiar? Because it becomes a theme in the story of the people of Israel. But even as they grumble, here God is patient with them. He meets their needs with food and water. And then Moses leads them through the desert until they arrive at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19. And after they get there, Moses goes to meet with God and God reaffirms his covenant with his people and his purpose for that covenant. Verse 3, Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Here, God confirms his purpose for the people of Israel. He wants them to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation set apart to minister to the entire world. He blesses them to be a blessing. He restores his relationship with them to restore his relationship with all humanity. So Moses takes God's message to the people of Israel, and they agree. Verse 8, the people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses takes their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. See here, this is a beautiful picture. The relationship with God is restored and God promises his full presence with them coming down in a cloud. It's a high point for the people of Israel. But like so many high points for them, it doesn't last very long. God calls Moses back up to Mount Sinai to receive what he calls the law. These are the Ten Commandments and other laws meant to shape Israel into a nation of justice and generosity that will be a catalyst for God's love to the whole world. And as he's up on Mount Sinai, the Bible tells us that the people can clearly see the presence of God surrounding the mountain. When Moses was up on the mountain, the cloud covered it. And the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up to the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Now it's important to know here, this isn't like the Rocky Mountains or, or whatever mountain stretch we are familiar with that reach ten or 20,000 feet in the air. Most scholars here believe that Moses was probably one to 2,000 feet up on Mount Sinai. It's more like a large hill than a mountain. Now, this is really important because the people of Israel could totally and clearly see the presence of God from their camp below. There was no question that God was with them. They could see his presence in the cloud, in the consuming fire on top of Mount Sinai with their own eyes. It was right before them. 
But while Moses is up on Mount Sinai for 40 days, he not only receives God's law, he also receives instructions for a new sanctuary, a new dwelling place for God and humanity called the tabernacle. Exodus 25, 8. Then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. God with us, his presence, his purpose. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishing exactly like the pattern I will show you. It's really beautiful. We talked about this a little bit last week, but so much of the tabernacle harkens back to the first temple God made to dwell with humanity in the Garden of Eden. The entrance faced east, just like Eden. It was adorned with flowers and angels, just like Eden. And just like there are six days of creation, there are six commands of instruction for building the tabernacle. Just like on the seventh day of creation, God rests, on the seventh day of dedicating the tabernacle, God comes to rest and dwell inside of it. The tabernacle is a portable Eden. It's a beautiful place filled with God's presence where he can dwell with humanity. So just as Moses is finishing up his 40 days on Mount Sinai, we see Israel starting to return to their old ways yet again. Exodus 32.1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain that they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That's like a great verse. They're looking up. They can see the cloud. They just watched Moses go into it. He's in there with God. They know that. And they're like, as for this fellow Moses that brought us out of Egypt, we do not know what has happened to him. Come, Aaron, build us a different God. It's been a month. It's been a month. They can literally see God's presence on the mountain above them, and they still look for something else to satisfy them. They still try to find fulfillment apart from God. And Moses' brother Aaron actually listens to them. He builds a golden calf for them to worship, thus breaking the first two commandments in the covenant agreement, no other gods before me and no idols. At this point, God is ready to release the people of Israel, to let them go their own way, but Moses begs God to forgive them. He makes this incredible plea to God on behalf of Israel in verse 31. Moses says, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now, please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. It's amazing. Moses is begging God to forgive the people of Israel. But even if God won't, Moses offers himself to suffer the consequences on behalf of his people. He lays down his life for the people of Israel. Does that sound like someone else we read about in the New Testament? And right here, there is this incredible moment that we often skip over when we're rolling through the story of Israel and the story of the Old Testament. And it's a moment where God shares about himself with Moses. He reveals himself. This is actually the first time in scripture we see God describing his own character. Here's what he says, Exodus 34. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. As he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. This is who God is. This is how he describes himself, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, forgiving, faithful, and just. I love how Pastor John Mark Comer says it in his book called God Has a Name. 
He says when God describes himself, he doesn't start with how powerful he is or how he knows everything there is to know or how he's been around since before time and space and there's no one else like him in the universe. You see, that's all true, but apparently to God, it's not the most important thing. When God describes himself, he starts with his name. Then he talks about what we call character. We see this beautiful character of God on display throughout the five acts in the biblical story. And because he is slow to anger and forgiving, God purifies and forgives Israel once again, even for the abomination of the golden calf, even for breaking the covenant. But things have changed, and they've changed for the worse. Israel's sin has caused the tabernacle to be tainted and broken. The book of Exodus tragically ends with Moses actually unable to enter the tabernacle. The portable Eden God desired to have with his people is once again broken by humanity's sin. God seeks after Israel, but they turn their backs on him. If if you're not familiar, the, the first five books of the Bible are called the Torah, and that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And as the story of Israel continues through these last three books of the Torah, we continue seeing this theme of God seeking to dwell with his people and them turning their backs on him. In Leviticus, God graciously provides a way for sinful, corrupt Israel to be reconciled to him, a way for them to dwell together. Israel actually listens this time. They they turn back to God. They pursue the heart of God in the Levitical law. And the book of Numbers, actually the very next book, opens up with Moses speaking to God inside the tabernacle. At the end of Exodus, he couldn't go in, but God has restored his relationship with Israel, and Moses is now able to enter his presence again. Everything seems right with the world. And Moses sets off to lead the people of Israel to the land God has promised to them. But as usual... The harmony is short-lived. The trip from Mount Sinai to the Promised Land should have taken two weeks, but after only three days on the road, Israel starts doubting God and complaining again. But true to his character, God is slow to anger and compassionate. He provides them with food from heaven and everything that they need here in the desert. But that only pacifies Israel for a moment. They continue to question God. Things actually get so bad that Moses' own brother and sister, Aaron and Miriam, lead a mini revolt against him in Numbers chapter 12. They try to overthrow Moses. Again, though, God is forgiving. He forgives and he even heals Miriam from the consequences of her sin. The people of Israel arrive in the desert of Paran, which is about halfway to the promised land. One week down, one week to go. At this point, spies are sent out from each of the 12 tribes of Israel to go check out the promised land, the land that God has promised to his people. Ten of the 12 tribe spies come back and say the land is populated by giants who will surely destroy us. We have no chance. We can't go into it. It's going to be terrible. But two of the spies return, Caleb and Joshua, and they say, yeah, yeah, they're big and and they look tough, but as long as God is with us, we can do anything. But guess who the people of Israel listen to? The ten spies who doubt God. Word spreads quickly around the camp, and it only takes hours before the people of Israel are in all-out rebellion. Numbers 14 records it, verse 1. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt. 
or in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader, a new leader, and go back to Egypt. And even though God is gracious, even though God is compassionate, even though he is so slow to anger, see the truth of the way God interacts with us is that many times he still allows us to choose. Israel chooses not to enter the promised land. They choose to turn their backs on God and he doesn't force them to go in. He decides to give the people what they want and so they begin to wander around the desert. And what should be a two-week journey from Mount Sinai, listen to this, a two-week journey from Mount Sinai to the promised land ends up taking 40 years. And after 40 years, the generation who didn't want to go into the promised land has died off. And the next generation is ready to trust God again. As the Torah comes to an end with the book of Deuteronomy, we see Moses calling Israel again to remain faithful, imploring them, begging them to keep the law as God prepares them to enter the promised land. Here's what Moses says right before he dies. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction, for I command you today to love the Lord your God to walk in obedience to him and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away, if your heart turns away, and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life. The Lord is your life. Nothing else. No, no idol, no new leader. No pagan religion, no amount of possessions. No, the Lord is your life. And he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses is imploring the people of Israel, his people, to choose the way of God, which leads to abundant life. But if they turn their backs on God again, he warns that way leads to death and destruction. But Moses has been with these people a long time. Like he, he knows them pretty well. He knows their hearts. A few verses later, Moses predicts that the people of Israel will again choose to turn their backs on God. Like their fathers and their fathers' fathers before them. God keeps making temples to dwell with humanity and they keep breaking them. All the way back to Adam and Eve in the very first temple in Eden. After Moses' death, Israel enters the promised land, but very quickly they do exactly as he predicted they would. They begin to intermarry with the Canaanite people who live in the promised land and start adopting their cultural and religious practices, which include horrific things like child sacrifice. God raises up a series of rulers called judges to lead Israel. We continue to see, even with the judges, this downward spiral of rebellion, repentance, 
restoration, followed by rebellion, repentance, restoration. The 12 tribes even start going to war with each other. The rebellion and the cycle just comes, becomes deeper and deeper and more severe. There is violence and evil everywhere. The book of Judges chronicles this horrible time in Israel's history. And in the very last sentence succinctly tells us what it was like. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Israel turned their backs on the ways of God and they were left only with sin and violence. But instead of turning back to God and his ways, the people of Israel actually begin to think that maybe not having a king, like all the other nations have, maybe that's their problem. So they ask God for a king, thinking that royalty will solve all their problems and fix the destruction that sin actually has brought on to them. And again, we see God give them what they want. He knows that a king won't solve anything, but he lets them choose. You see, listen to me. They don't need another king. They need to trust the one that they have. And this is so, so important to understand. Israel doesn't need another king, another judge, another pagan god, another temple, another religious experience. They need to trust the God who has been with them since day one who has walked with them through the desert, who is part of the Red Sea, who has always heard their cries. And they need to trust his words and find their life in him. They are searching for the illusion of fulfillment apart from God. And it simply does not exist. As we move forward in the story of Israel, we come to the books of First and Second Samuel. We meet the prophet Samuel, whom God uses to crown this first king that the people of Israel has asked for. It's a guy named Saul. Saul starts out pretty good, but he soon becomes prideful. He forgets God. And God sends Samuel to tell Saul that he has failed and there will be a new king coming. That king is a guy named David. Saul gets insanely jealous and tries to kill David, but David runs away. Eventually, Saul is brought to ruin and David becomes king. And David really is a bright spot for the people of Israel. He and Saul in this book are really depicted as opposites. Saul, full of pride and brought low by God. David, full of humility and raised up by God. David trusts God and trusts God's timing. You see, even when Saul is trying to kill him, David doesn't retaliate. He has all these opportunities to actually kill Saul and he doesn't do it. He trusts God and God comes through for him. He's even called a man after God's own heart. David begins his reign by trusting in God and experiencing the fullness and life of God's blessing. He unites the kingdom of Israel. He makes Jerusalem its political and religious capital. God enters into a covenant with David, just like he did with Abraham, and here is what God promises him. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. Now, this kind of seemed to point towards David's son Solomon, who would build the temple in Jerusalem. But the New Testament writer of the book of Hebrews tells us that this also points to a new and better king. Later, the Bible calls him the greater David. And he wouldn't just build a temple of stone. He would establish a whole new kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. 
That king's name is Jesus. But it is not quite time for him to enter our story just yet. Back to the life of David. In the midst of all this blessing and promise from God, David does something really horrible. He commits adultery with Bathsheba and has her husband Uriah killed. The prophet Nathan confronts David and he repents. God forgives him, but there are consequences for David's choices. Not long after this, David's family starts falling apart. One of his sons tries to kill him, and then that son is actually murdered himself. Moving into the book of First and Second Kings, David's son Solomon becomes king. Again, Solomon starts out strong by listening to God and asking for God's wisdom as he leads Israel. The high point of his reign comes in 1 Kings 6 when he builds the temple for God in Jerusalem. And just like the tabernacle that Moses built, Solomon's temple evokes images of the Garden of Eden. It's meant to be a place for God's presence, a place for God with us, a place for him to dwell with humanity and to be in relationship with them. And after Solomon dedicates the temple, God appears to him and says, 1 Kings 9, I have heard the prayer and plea that you have made before me. I have consecrated this temple, which you have built, by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. As for you, if you walk before me faithfully with integrity of heart and uprightness, as as David your father did, and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. As I promised David your father when I said, you shall never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. But if you or your descendants turn away from me and do not observe the commands and decrees that I have given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land I have given them. I will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. Israel will then become a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples and this temple will become a heap of rubble. Now, since you have come this far in the story with me, I bet you can guess what happens next. Solomon leaves the wisdom of God behind. He starts pursuing wealth and power at all costs. He enslaves his own people, makes them build larger and larger buildings for him. He intermarries with other king's daughters for political alliances and then adopts these other gods and tells Israel to worship them. Even Solomon, the man many call the wisest person to ever live, buys the lie that he can find fulfillment and life apart from God. If you go back to God's guidelines for kings in Deuteronomy, Solomon is breaking every one of them. He actually becomes more like Egypt's Pharaoh than his dad, David. After he dies, Israel splits into two parts, ten tribes in the north called Israel, under King Jeroboam, and two tribes in the south called Judah, under Solomon's son, King Rehoboam. The rest of First and Second Kings tell the story of king after king in both of these nations who turn their backs on God, who worship other gods, and oppress humanity. God's warning to Solomon in 1 Kings 9 becomes a reality when Babylon invades Jerusalem at the end of 2 Kings. Chapter 25, on the seventh day of the fifth month, in the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, the commander of the imperial guard, an official of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burned down. The people of God now find themselves in exile in Babylon, and their temple has been destroyed. 
After 70 long years of exile in Babylon, God hears again the cries of Israel. He frees them from captivity. They begin returning to Jerusalem to rebuild everything. And it seems like, right, we've heard this before, it seems like God's people are back. It seems like they're, they're doing the right things, but, but things aren't the same as they were before. Even after the temple is rebuilt, God's presence doesn't fill it, and it falls into disrepair. The people of Israel begin doubting God once again. They neglect God's heart for the world. They start that same downward spiral that we've seen over and over again. Now, throughout these many years of God with his people in Israel, he consistently sends prophets to Israel. And prophets were people that spoke for God, that, that called them back to his laws, his heart, his love for them. So as we wrap up the Old Testament story of Israel, God sends one last prophet. His name is Malachi. Malachi's four chapters are the last chapters in our Old Testament as well as the last time God will speak for 400 years. This period is called the intertestamental period because it's the time between the Old and the New Testaments. So what are these last words from God to Israel all about? God tells the people that they have, once again, turned their backs on him. They are worshiping other things. They are hurting each other. They are oppressing people. And they are even continuing to look for fulfillment in life apart from God, even though their fathers and their fathers' fathers, <clears throat> generation to generation, has never found it in anything else. At one point, God says through Malachi, Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. I want you to pause for a second. I want you to think about the ark of this story, right? It starts out with God creating the perfect temple for him to dwell with humanity in Eden and ends with God telling Israel to close his temple doors because they've turned so far away from him. The story of Israel is the story of a people continually searching for the illusion of fulfillment and life apart from God. But it, it just doesn't exist. It's just not there. Starting all the way back with their mother Eve and their father Adam, they think the life they've always dreamed of is just one piece of forbidden fruit away. They look for life in, in buildings, in idols, in cities, in judges, in kings, in religious rituals, in wealth, in politics, in the military power of their nation. Over and over, we see them chasing fulfillment apart from God. And over and over, we see God saying, okay, as much as it breaks my heart, if that's what you choose, here you go. But Israel doesn't need another king. It doesn't need another judge, another idol, another temple, another religious experience. As we said before, they simply need to trust the God that has been with them by their side in their presence since day one. I trust that his words are true. They are searching for the illusion of fulfillment apart from God. They're looking for life somewhere else, and it doesn't exist. God has been patient, true to his character. He's been compassionate and forgiving and so very slow to anger. 
But as act two comes to a close, it seems like he's had enough. He's brought his presence down in clouds and pillars of fire and burning bushes, but Israel has turned their backs on all of them. He's built and rebuilt temple after temple to dwell with humanity, but they've broken them all. Shut the temple doors, God says. I am not pleased with you. It seems like he's saying, I'm done. And after seeing the continuous rebellion of Israel, this shouldn't surprise us. And if this was the end of the story, it would be a fitting one. It would be a fair one. But it's not. It's not the end of the story. The God who has built temple after temple to dwell with humanity, the God who keeps pursuing humanity with his love, isn't done yet. The book of Malachi and the entire Old Testament end with three verses. Malachi 4, 4 through 6, God says to Israel, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and the laws I gave him at Mount Sinai for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. The last thing God says to Israel before he goes silent for 400 years is a promise that he will send Elijah to them to proclaim his good news before the day of the Lord comes to turn the hearts of parents and children back to each other and back to him. But the prophet Elijah died hundreds of years before Malachi wrote this. So who is this new prophet Elijah that God says will come before the day of the Lord? Well, this isn't the only time in the Old Testament that a deceased hero is said to be returning. There's prophecy of a new Elijah a new Moses, a new David, a new prophet, a new priest, a new king, a son of man that will crush the head of evil and bring about the kingdom of God, a Messiah, a savior. Act two might be ending, but my friends, the story is really just beginning. And I want to leave you with the same hope that God leaves the people of Israel. No matter how far you've strayed, no matter how many other places you've looked for life and fulfillment, no matter how many times you've turned your back on God, there is a Savior. For the people of Israel, He was coming soon, but for us, He's here now. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the story of Israel, because not only is it beautiful and is it impactful and is it informative, God, but it's our story in so many ways. All of us have looked for fulfillment in life apart from you, but we know, God, if we've been on earth, this earth for any period of time, we know it just doesn't exist. God, I pray that we would cling to Jesus, cling to our Savior. And I pray that no matter how much guilt or shame we feel, God, that you would take that from us. That no matter how many times we've turned away, how many times we've sought life and fulfillment in something else. No matter how many times we've walked away from your presence, God, help us know and feel that you are right there waiting. That through your son, Jesus, you have made a way.
for us to be with you, for us to experience your presence, for us to experience God with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.